Hello, and welcome to the Newton Knowledge Podcast. My name is Mark Singer, partner of Newton One Advisors, and I'm joined today by not only my colleague, Stephen Target, managing partner of our firm, but also Amy Mister, our director of underwriting, and Brittany Vavala, our lead client service rep. The Newton Knowledge Podcast will provide meaningful content to our valued advisor community and clients who are interested in learning more about sophisticated insurance-related topics, focusing on estate planning and executive benefits. During our podcast, we focus our discussions on content that will deliver unique insights to the people, processes, and products that make our industry so critical. Newton One is a national life insurance planning firm delivering customized insurance solutions structured to help clients and their advisors engaged in solving estate planning, wealth transfer, business succession, and executive benefits challenges. We are a member of the M Financial Group, offering our clients access to the nation's most prestigious insurance carriers and innovative products available only through our network. Today, we're keeping everything within the Newton One family figuratively and somewhat literally, considering Amy and Brittany are actual sisters. But what I mean is our our focus will be on our internal policies and procedures, uh, emphasizing the importance of ongoing servicing and management of life insurance policies. This is our 12th episode. We attempt to select topics that hopefully provides value and insight to our listeners. And no host or segment is more or less imperative than the next. But this episode and topic is invaluable. It truly keeps this train running, if you will, with Amy and Brittany being the conductors. Majority of our engagements and implementations require elite knowledge and experience beginning with underwriting, implementation, and then policy audits and reviews. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but Brittany and Amy play such an important role in making our clients experience and and continued involvement elite. They are true differentiators within this marketplace, and we thank you. And I know our clients and partners of our firm are extremely appreciative of the dedication and work you two do. So thanks. I digress. So Amy and Britt, I see you've pulled up some statistics on why policy stewardship is so important. I glanced at a few of them earlier and some are very surprising. Well, for starters, only 29% of trustees have reviewed policies in the past five years. 84% of agents or firms not having any guidelines or procedures in place for annual reviews or reallocations and 70 to 95% of policies or insureds do not have a servicing agent. One of the most eye-opening statistics I saw was 92% of existing policies could be restructured to provide more value to the client. The question stems, why should you restructure them or even consider that? And first, it should begin with the client's capital needs. How much death benefit is sufficient? Are the proceeds that were placed five to 10 years ago adequate protection now? Has the client acquired more assets, less assets? Has a change in family dynamics taken place? Have they sold a business or come into a large inheritance? There's a a multitude of scenarios that will change the necessary amount of insurance protection. Being one of the more fundamental, simple review steps, it's surprising how infrequently this type of analysis performed. Second, if it's a permanent policy, what were the goals for placing it and how was it structured to meet those objectives? Was it for wealth transfer reasons where you traditionally focus on minimal premium to death benefit? Was it for cash accumulation purposes for supplemental retirement income, providing tax deferred growth with income tax free distributions when structured properly? Another good question here is how did they decide on the permanent solution to use? In some certain companies or agents, they only have access to two or even sometimes one permanent product, unintentionally limiting a client's opportunity to see and understand the numerous amounts of permanent vehicles that are available. The last piece, and surely not the least, is how is the policy performing? 
And depending on the actual type of contract, most permanent policies have some form of crediting rate that dictates the, the cash growth. This rate can mirror an index, reciprocate a dividend rate, or be based off separate account performance, uh, performance similar to mutual funds. It depends on the type of policy, and we'll touch on this in greater detail later on, but monitoring this performance allows for proactive adjustments to be made, if need be, based on year-to-date performance. These reviews are becoming more prudent due to the great deal of volatility in both the markets impacting separate accounts, as well as the incessant low interest rate environment, which has negatively impacted cash accumulating universal life policies and whole life insurance policies. Additionally, the costs associated with index universal life contracts have increased, which has impacted the ability for carriers to maintain such high caps on index universal life programs. Another item to be aware of when policies are owned by life insurance trust, and this is a very common practice with our clientele, like any asset held in trust, the trustee of a life insurance policy has a fiduciary responsibility to review trust-owned life insurance and ensure that the policies are performing adequately. Failure to do so may result in litigation for with the trustee is personally liable per the Uniform Prudent Investors Act. It may be wise to take note if you happen to be the trustee on trust-owned life insurance policy or if you have a trust-owned policy in place and you're having a hard time remembering the last time you reviewed it with your trustee. Steve, I'd like to revisit the different types of structures of permanent policies, their associated crediting rates, and why reviews should be a key practice for such planning. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And I I think that this part of the conversation is really based on an understanding of how life insurance policies are priced and why it's so critical for us to continue to look on an ongoing basis at the performance of the policy. So if we start with kind of a, a basic understanding that all permanent life insurance policies are priced or structured off of some assumption uh, of an interest rate. And so if we, if we kind of go through the different types of life insurance policies, we've, we've got a universal life um, uh, grouping of policies and those can be current assumption policies, it can be indexed universal life, it can be variable universal life, and of course, there's whole life insurance policies as well. So the, the, the basic understanding is that there's an inverse relationship between the crediting or the interest that is um, uh, associated with the policy and the premium uh, that's paid. So as policies are being priced, a lower premium in order to uh, keep the policy in place for the duration that's desired needs simply a higher crediting rate. And a higher crediting rate is generally an interest rate that we can look at over a long period of time. For example, in in variable universal life policies, that crediting rate is based on the performance of the underlying separate accounts. And that's in the insurance world, we we call them the underlying accounts, separate accounts. For um, many people, they refer to them as mutual funds, but in the insurance world, we call them separate accounts. Um, The other side to that uh, equation is a current assumption sort of universal life insurance policy, which generally has a short-term interest rate crediting, which then means that a higher premium needs to be paid to make up for the lower interest that's being credited to the policy. And one is not right and one is not wrong. It's just a matter of risk tolerance of the of the insured or the owner of the policy. And over time, what we do know is that whatever we put together or whatever an insurance agent illustrates is simply not going to come to actual fruition as it's illustrated. It it just it can't it can't happen. If we illustrate a a, a gross growth rate in a variable universal life policy of six percent, for example, 
you know, you might achieve a 6% right on the number in one year, but the next year it's not going to be 6%. It'll be higher or lower. So this is why it's so important for us to go back every year and revisit what the actual crediting rates are, whether it's a variable universal uh, policy that has separate accounts that are going up and down or a current assumption universal life policy that is um, moves a little bit slower, but why it's so important every year to look at what the original illustration was and what the assumption was on that crediting rate versus what the actual performance of that policy was. And so if we look at the life insurance death benefit as an asset and understanding that we need a certain amount of premium to be paid on an annual basis and then a certain assumption made or actual crediting on an interest rate, what we know is that over time, we may need to make adjustments to the premiums that are actually paid. So if the performance of that crediting rate is better than what's illustrated, there's a chance that the premiums paid moving forward could be lower. And conversely, if the interest rate is lower, then we might need to pay a higher premium to keep that policy in place for the duration. So again, this just validates the fact that on an annual basis, we need to go back or we should be going back or any insured or owner should be looking at what the original illustration was, what the assumptions were based on the interest crediting rate and how the policy is actually performing. So even whole life insurance, which is deemed or sometimes believed to be the safer sort of uh, life insurance policy, there's an interest rate that's, that's um, attached to that policy as well. And that interest rate is part of the dividend that's paid. So in a dividend, there's three components. We have an interest component, we have a mortality expense, and then general operating expenses. But one of those three uh, components is the interest rate. So a whole life insurance carrier, a mutual insurance carrier that's investing their assets in a general account is subject to ups and downs in the market, just like any other investment. So even whole life insurance policies have some assumption made with the dividend when the policy is taken out. And again, even those need to be reviewed to assume to go back and, and look at the actual performance versus the assumed performance. The other expenses that are associated in whole life policies, are they disclosed to the client or the advisor? Not directly. So whole life insurance policies are kind of a, a blended sort of expense ratio that isn't as clearly defined as other sorts of policies. Now, the, the most transparent in terms of expenses is a private placement insurance policy. We're not going to have that discussion in this uh, podcast directly, uh, but the private placement is probably the most transparent in terms of what the operating expenses are, what the mortality charges are, and of course, because that's a variable sort of policy, what the separate account performance could be. Anytime permanent policies are discussed, whole life usually leads that discussion with most clients. The dividend interest is one of the, the main components of that discussion, but there's other variables that come into play in terms of expense. So. Yeah, and I think it's also important to note that, you know, there's a lot of our prospective clients that use the term whole life kind of too broadly. You know, they think that, a, that they have an, a whole life insurance policy and it might, in fact, not be a whole life. It might be a universal life insurance policy. Because back in the day, I mean, there was only whole life insurance and term insurance. And universal life as a, as a product, I think, really took a hold in the early 80s. When clients say or when advisors say, you know, I've got a whole life insurance policy, we'll typically kind of tap the brakes and make sure that we're looking at a whole life, not a universal life contract. And the other issue that has complicated um, the review process with regard to interest rate assumptions is some new regulations uh, for indexed universal life insurance policies. And these are the AG49 uh, regulations, which really limit, and in some ways, it, 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 this is a good thing, 
but they limit what interest rate we can illustrate, not only on new policies, but also on existing policies. And I say it's a good thing because what we don't want in the insurance industry is we don't want rogue agents that are illustrating completely unrealistic interest rate assumptions. So it is good from that perspective that it, that it helps um, really validate what the, the likely interest rate crediting would be on an indexed universal life insurance policy. But the challenge is um, that number changes on, well, in some cases, on a monthly basis and from carrier to carrier based on how that policy is actually structured. We don't want to get into details of uh, how index universal life insurance policies are structured, but there's a floor and there's a cap on interest rate that's tied to some index, in many cases, a standard and poor 500 index. So that creates a, a real challenge uh, as we service policies because what was illustrated originally which may very well have been a very conservative illustration today, based on the regulations, we might not even be able to go back to that interest rate assumption. Again, from our perspective, uh, it, it still may be the right number or the interest rate that we feel is appropriate moving forward. But based on the regulations, we simply can't actually illustrate how the policy will perform moving forward. And that creates some, in our opinion, some potential misunderstandings about how index universal life insurance policies could perform. And I guess the last thing I'll note is just, you know, as we're, as we're talking about structuring policies, there, there's really a difference. And we talk about this a lot in Newton One about the difference between competitive pricing and sound pricing. And what we mean by that is competitive pricing is perhaps illustrating interest rate assumptions that are too aggressive. And by doing that, again, remember the inverse relationship of interest rate and premiums. If you have an, an unrealistic interest rate assumption that, let's just say, is too high, then the premium required in order to keep that policy in place might be too low. And we just don't think that's a good way to, to, to not only illustrate, but also to structure policies. So the sound pricing philosophy, which is what we abide by, is making sure that the interest rate assumptions that we make on illustrations are appropriate based on what we believe is the, the right assumptions to be made moving forward. And we would much rather be a conservative on an interest rate assumption to soundly price a policy, to have premium payments on an annual basis that are appropriate. And if the policy outperforms or the interest rate that's actually credited is better than what was illustrated, then the good news is we might be able to decrease the premiums moving forward or at some point actually eliminate premiums moving forward. So if we have these conversations on an annual basis, just like anybody would have reviewing their investment portfolio or reviewing any sort of future looking growth component, if we have these conversations on an annual basis, we can stay ahead of changes versus getting 5, 10, 15 years down the road and trying to do some catch up or some makeup. So it's table stakes for us. And we're fortunate that we have such a talented team that understands how policies are priced, how under, uh, they understand how policies perform. And, you know, I can tell you that on a, on a regular basis, we challenge each other to make sure that the policies are appropriately structured and performing how they want the policy to perform moving forward. All good points, Steve. And it, it's funny, having a policy that's soundly priced, it's all intertwined when it goes to uh, the review process and, and kicking back to Amy and Brittany, starting with a policy that's implemented that is soundly priced. You guys are in the trenches, but I can only assume ongoing that it kicks up for easier conversations on annual reviews because the policy was put in at an appropriate crediting rate. 
Do you want to go in a little detail on how that process looks and what our procedures look like internally when you are doing annual reviews for our clients? Yeah, um, Mark, Steve, you just listed a bunch of good points um, regarding the structures of the policies. And it, it, it's clear that the lack of review and servicing of these life insurance policies we put in place can have a significant impact on the performance. Um, the re review process we provide here at Newton One is not only a good time to compare the performance to the original baseline we put in place, but also to look into any changes that need to occur going forward. Um, these changes could include ownership changes or beneficiary designations. Um, many times our insureds have life, life changes um, and we need to make updates to the policies. We can look into fund allocation changes to reallocate the funds going into the policy to look at different performance outcomes. As Steve mentioned before, premiums may need to be changed, whether up or down. Um, or for the trust-owned policies we have out there, there are many times trustee updates that need to be made for those trustees that manage the policies. All of these factors play an important part in the success of our life insurance policies here at Newton One. Um, and we do have a strong team here in place to, to make sure that happens. I will go off of what Amy said. And Steve, he commented on how the policy should be re reviewed minimally on an annual basis. As Amy mentioned, we use the illustration as a benchmark to base our performance for our annual reviews. Anytime there's a premium change to the policy, we will update the benchmark or the baseline to reflect that change so that we're getting a more accurate picture of how the policy should be performing. Thank you, Britt. It's all about open dialogue regarding the, the original goals of the policy versus goals based on current circumstances. In order to do this, the question is, all right, well, we want to go through the review process. So how does that look? Well, first, we need current in-force illustrations showing the projected values moving forward with appropriate interest rate assumptions. Once we have that, then we can then again go back to the client, do a fact find, see if it's aligned with their goals and objectives or if, uh, if it's not sufficient or if it is. And our, our founder says this all the time and, and I reiterate it and I know Steve does as well. If there's not going to be a material or substantial change to the policies in place that are going to be truly advantageous and substantial for the client and their, their legacy planning or, or for the family, um, then we're not going to make a change. And that's just as, as simple as it can get. I will say that due to the advantages, we, re, we are fortunate enough to receive through the M Financial family and the exclusive products and, and pricing and how our policies work more efficient, uh, are more efficiently um, functioning, uh, I would say nine times out of 10, depending on the client's health at that time, uh, we're usually capable of finding solutions that are going to be substantially and materially different and beneficial to the client or the engagement that we are brought into. What are some of the potential outcomes of a review? One being restructuring the policy with, with the current carrier in order. Uh, and again, this is to align with the current goals and objectives. So maybe we're going to extend the duration of coverage. Um, maybe cash value growth is more ideal and we need to structure the policy differently, minimizing death benefit proceeds and maximizing the cash value. Restructuring the policy with a new carrier. You know, this carrier now is a player in, in that planning technique due to the, the change in, in lower mortality charges and possibly other internal expenses. 
carriers are using updated mortality charts, which are more favorable for certain insureds and, and certain rating classes and certain medical history. That's just knowing the carriers um, from an underwriting standpoint, which Brittany and Amy are, again, second to none uh, in those regards. In, in terms of restructuring the policy, adding riders is, a, is another advantage, especially long-term care nowadays. Um, and that's more for the planning aspect. You know, a lot of our clientele, I would say, can self-fund, but it's not so much for the actual funding for long-term care needs. It's the planning or the dedicated funds that are set up towards planning within these life insurance policies. So rather than having to liquidate assets or take funds elsewhere, um, having a dedicated long-term care rider within certain life insurance policies is a nice way to delineate this is what's going to be, be used for long-term care facilities or long-term care needs. For example, if you have a whole life policy in place and restructuring it to one of M Financial's proprietary products, say an index universal life with uh, nationwide and tacking on a long-term care rider, performing a 1035 exchange from the cash within the whole life policy to that index universal life policy with a long-term care rider with potentially reducing premiums in doing so is a huge win for the client. Then, then the question goes, well, what if the insurance policy that was put in place just isn't needed anymore? It has done its job in, in terms of estate tax requirements. The, the, there, there may not be one or there may be other policies in place to, to mitigate that fully. Our assets have been gifted out of one's estate to where there is no estate tax. And there's just a policy that's simply not beneficial for the client. This is where life settlements come into play or viatical settlements. And we partner with, with certain advisors that focus purely on life settlement transactions. And this is where the sale of the policy in regards to a third party would take over the, the policy. And once the, the applicant passes away, in turn, they would receive the death benefit proceeds. In terms of the value of the policy, usually health comes into play and the duration or longevity of that client may not be as um, lengthy uh, or in terms of how much the, they are willing to pay would be dependent upon how long that client actuarially is going to be uh, with us. So in terms of life settlements, sometimes that can be a uh, advantageous play for the client and the family if there's policies that are no longer needed benefits wise. So I think that's it. I, I, I think we covered everything. Uh, again, in terms of monitoring, servicing, and auditing the policies is as every bit as important as putting the right policy in place, soundly priced. That's all we have today. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, thank you, Brittany, Amy, for your support. We wouldn't be able to do what we do here at Newton One if it wasn't for you two. Have a great day. The material and opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what is appropriate for you, please contact a member of our team.